0: Good evening, and welcome to this second lecture by David Gross. My name is Sanjeev Arora. I'm the chair of the Public Lectures Committee. And uh, uh, I'd like to say a few words about the, uh, the fund that, uh, that uh, sponsors tonight, tonight's lectures. Uh, so it's jointly sponsored by the J. Edgar Farnham Fund at Princeton University, which was founded in 1930 in memory of J. Edgar, uh, Edward Farnham. Uh, it's also co-sponsored by the Princeton University Press, which will be bringing out a book uh, based upon these lectures in a few months or maybe a year. Uh, just as uh, last night we had uh, Edward Whitten to introduce the speaker, tonight we are lucky to have another world-famous string theorist, Professor Igor Klebanov of Princeton. Uh, who got his Ph.D. from 1986 and is one of the leading experts in string theory, specifically something called BRAINS, that's B-R-A-N-E-S, which I think we'll hear about more today. So please welcome Professor Well,
1: Thank you for this nice introduction to introduction. Uh, uh, it's a real pleasure to welcome David Gross back to Princeton for this special three-public lecture series called The Search for a Theory of Fundamental Reality. And uh, as all of you know, David is one of the foremost theoretical physicists who is distinguished by many seminal contributions to a variety of areas of theoretical physics. Um, Uh, So just a brief uh, biographical sketch for those of of you who weren't here yesterday. Uh, David was uh, born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and then from age 12 in Jerusalem, uh, where he went to high school and then graduated from the Hebrew University. Uh, He proceeded to, uh, to go to University of California, Berkeley, where he received his Ph.D. in 1966. Uh, and then was a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows, which is widely known as the best postdoc in our field from 1966 till 1969. Uh, Then he moved to Princeton University, where he was on faculty for 27 years, most recently as a Thomas D. Jones professor of mathematical physics. Uh, In 1997, David assumed the directorship of the Institute for Theoretical Physics at UC Santa Barbara, uh, where he is now a Glock professor. Um, So uh, David is a member of uh, many learned societies, uh, including the National Academy of Sciences and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, Among his many awards are the Dirac Medal from ICTP in Trieste, the MacArthur Foundation Prize, the Oscar Klein Medal, the Harvey Prize, the Grand Medaille d'Or from the French Academy of Sciences. And of course, in 2004, David was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics, quote unquote, for discovery of asymptotic freedom in the theory of strong interaction. Uh, and uh, As you all heard yesterday, the work of Gross and uh, Wilczek, who was at the time his graduate student, was carried out right here at Princeton University, uh, which is a great source of pride for all of us here. Uh, And uh, I should say, after the prize announcement in 2004, many people would ask me if I knew David before he left Princeton, and I would reply, definitely, he was my boss. Uh, uh, But in any case, it was uh, great fun working with him. (laughs) Um, so yesterday we heard uh, a fascinating account of, of how the discovery was made, and this was truly a turning point in physics, which led to a flourishing of gauge theory in the 1970s. And then in the mid-'80s, there was another truly exciting period, often called the superstring Revolution. And I was fortunate to be a graduate student here at Princeton, and I saw... Uh, how Princeton basically instantly transformed itself into a hotbed of of string theory, and David then once again took the lead. He was the senior member of the so-called Princeton Heterotic String Quartet, uh, which discovered uh, a new and particularly promising kind of string theory called the heterotic string. Uh, Undoubtedly, we'll hear about it today and tomorrow. Uh, And this discovery provided an enormous boost to the search for a unified theory of fundamental interactions, So as you see, David Gross is uniquely qualified to present the lecture today whose title is Questions and Speculations, the Search for a Unified Theory.
2: Am I the only one who's hearing that kind of buzzing? So, uh, why is there a light right on the screen from there? we don't have the screen. Ah. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's nice to see some of you again, and those of you who were not here yesterday, uh, today's talk deals with the present. Yesterday's talk dealt with the past. Tomorrow's talk will deal with the future of the search for a theory of fundamental reality. For those of you who are not here yesterday, I will not tell you what I mean by fundamental reality. I already did that. Uh, You can come to your own conclusions. Um, Today's talk, Lecture 2 in this series, is devoted to the many profound questions that remain unanswered by the extremely successful theory that I discussed yesterday, the standard model of elementary particle physics. I will explain in this theory why we have been led to search for a unified theory of all the forces of nature, (coughs) including gravity, which uh, is essentially left out in a deep sense of of the standard model and why we believe that a new quantum symmetry of space-time might soon be discovered. And finally, I will address how these speculations have led to a new kind of theory, uh string theory, in which all the basic constituents of matter and the quanta of forces are different vibrations of a single extended string-like entity. So, uh let us recapitulate our discussion of the standard model of elementary particle physics that was completed in the early 70s and has survived very well over the last 30 years. It has been tested in hundreds of experiments and together with the Einsteinian theory of general relativity, we believe that it correctly describes, as far as we can tell so far, uh, all the observed forces of nature, (coughs) including the three subatomic forces of nature, electromagnetism, and the two nuclear forces, the weak and the strong force that I I discussed in so much detail yesterday. and gravity. All of those theories, uh, to the extent that we understand them, are described in this general framework which I briefly reviewed, the quantum theory of relativistic fields. Although Einstein's theory so far has only been used in the classical or non-quantum mechanical domain. and uh, if we include gravity, we seem to have an account of all observed fundamental forces of nature and an account that seems to work extraordinarily well. So, to that, in that sense, quantum field theory, tested by the standard model and even general relativity, is indeed the theory of all observed forces of nature a theory that has been tested with extraordinary accuracy down to distances of order 10 to the minus 18 centimeters. That's about um, a billion let's put it this way it's a a nano-nano-nanoscience it is roughly a hundred billion times smaller than the size of the atom. And the accuracy to which the uh, tests of the standard model have been performed are extraordinarily impressive. In the case of quantum electrodynamics, the first relativistic quantum field theory that we had that was applied to Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism we can sometimes test the predictions of the theory to one part in 10 billion. An amazing accomplishment of both experiment and theory. But in the case, also in the case of the nuclear forces, for example, in the case of the weak force, which has now been unified or more precisely mixed with electromagnetism, the precision tests of the theory sometimes approach one part in a 100,000. And even in the case of the strong interaction, the strong nuclear force, the hardest of all three, we now have precision tests of quantum chromodynamics, some of which I illustrated yesterday, that are better than 1% and are approaching one part in a 1,000. Let me say uh, a bit about this drive for precision in physics, which is truly unequal by any other science. Consider the uh, measurement of the magnetic moment of the electron. According to relativistic quantum mechanics, the electron has an intrinsic rotation. And of course, the electron has a charge. It's a charged particle. So a rotating charge has a magnetic moment, and that magnetic moment can be calculated precisely, we believe, in uh, quantum electrodynamics and has been. And it can be measured very precisely by extraordinarily beautiful experiments whereby single electrons are trapped in clever magnetic devices and one measures the frequency of radio waves emitted by the electron as its little bar magnet processes about an applied magnetic field. In this way, in appropriate units, uh, the magnetic moment, which classically would be 2 in the appropriate units, is measured to be 2.00231930437, and these numbers are somewhat uncertain. You can see what the error is. Amazing. Equally amazing is the fact that theorists have been able, after years, decades of very hard calculations, conceptually easy but technically hard, to calculate the value of the mag- what the magnetic moment should be according to the theory, which comes out to be 2.00231930437. And these last numbers are uncertain to this the accuracy. One part in 10 billion. Imagine measuring a number and having to get the tenth decimal place correct or calculating a number and not making one of thousands of little mistakes you might make which would destroy this accuracy. The agreement is amazing. The difference between theory and experiment has ten zeros here, and then a four, but well within the error bars. The error is dominated, actually, the theoretical error. Which is the biggest, is dominated by the uncertainty in the measured value of the electric charge that has to be used in the theoretical calculation. The heroic efforts of experimenters and theorists to perform such high precision tests are not just showing off. They are a way of searching for new physics and subjecting are fundamental theories of nature to the most demanding experimental tests. And physicists have, for the last 20-30 years, followed these increasingly precise tests of the theory with great interest. They're not just... This isn't just fun, although it is a lot of fun to see such agreement. But any deviation from experiment to theory would be an indication of some kind of breakdown of the theory or an indication of new physics that was not included in the calculation. So if a discrepancy shows up, even in the 13th decimal point, it would be an indication of the need for new forces or new matter beyond the standard model. That's why precision is so important in physics and especially in the test of our most fundamental ideas. Now, the standard model has been attested with this extraordinary accuracy, as I said, down to distances of order a nano, nano, nano centimeter. Uh, And a remarkable state of affairs. But we can theoretically try to estimate where it might break down. And as far as we know, we see no reason why it couldn't continue to work for 15 more orders of magnitude. In fact, we see no reason why quantum field theory, this general conceptual framework, could not be, couldn't be valid until we get to the so-called Planck length, which I'll discuss in more detail later, which is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, unimaginably small distances. Now, if you think that the standard model of elementary particle physics in a crude reductionist sense describes all observed physics, indeed, it describes stars and planets and galaxies, and together with the semi classical or non quantum mechanical theory of general relativity, it describes the universe as a whole. In a sense, we might validly say that uh, we have a theory, the standard model and the general theoretical framework of quantum field theory, that describes all the forces of nature, seems to work from the Planck length to the edge of the universe, which is roughly 60 orders of magnitude. That is an amazing accomplishment of science of the 20th century of all times. You might think, what more do you want? You have a theory in some sense, tested to one part in 10 billion, works from the smallest imaginable length, perhaps, to the edge of the universe. Go home. Well, we can't. The exploration of fundam- the frontiers of fundamental physics does not, by any means, end with the success of the Standard Model. Actually, to a large extent, it begins with the success of the Standard Model. We're not satisfied by, with the Standard Model as it stands, and we're not satisfied with it because there are so many questions that remain unanswered, so many questions that are posed by the standard model, that cry out for explanation by the very nature and structure of what we have learned. Science produces knowledge, but I like to say that the most important product of knowledge is ignorance. The driving force of science is the questions we ask the embodiment of our ignorance and the questions we ask today based on our knowledge are more profound and more interesting than those we asked years ago when I started as a student. Many of those questions were fascinating, many were answered but back then we didn't possess enough knowledge to be as intelligently ignorant as we are today, and therefore to be able to ask some of the wonderful questions that we ask today. Now many of these questions begin with why, because we understand in great detail how Many of the fundamental forces, or all that we have observed of the fundamental forces of nature work, but we don't understand why they have the features they do. Yesterday I distinguished between what is reality and what isn't, and some why questions we do not regard as part of our definition of reality, but there are many that we do. For example, why are all the three forces of this very special kind, actually not just the three subatomic forces of electricity and magnetism and the nuclear forces, but even Einstein's theory of gravity, all four forces of nature are of a very particular kind dictated by local symmetries of nature. What is so special about that kind of force, aside from their obvious aesthetic appeal? Well, and there are many other kinds of forces that we could imagine within the conceptual framework of quantum field theory. Why don't they appear? And then within the standard model, there are all these numbers, these pure numbers that characterize the strength of the forces. For example, the famous fine structure constant that characterizes the strength of the electromagnetic force and is roughly the inverse of 137 although it's known to this accuracy uh, we don't can't explain that number we have to take it from measurement we should be able to calculate it remember what Einstein said well you don't remember because i haven't told you yet it comes actually tomorrow But. Roughly, he said, if you can't calculate a number like this, something's wrong with your theory. You have to do better. These kinds of why questions are characteristic to children and to theoretical physicists. And they lead to speculation that suggests new physics, new experiments, reveal new phenomena. And then once we find the new phenomena, we start figuring out how it works. Once we understand how it works, we ask more why questions, even more profound why questions. Another kind of why question we ask within the standard model has to do with the families of quarks and leptons. Remember, we discussed that within the standard model, all of matter seems to be built out of three families, three replicas of quarks that come in three colors and leptons like the electron and neutrino. Well, why are there three families? Why not one family? Or ten? And why do the leptons and quarks have the strange spectrum of masses that they have? For years we have been measuring with precision the masses and the mixings of these quarks and leptons. Enormous effort has been devoted to unraveling a very strange spectrum of masses, uh, with the hope that a pattern would emerge. But the spectrum seems totally bizarre. Uh, a wide range of different masses. The top quark, for example, now that <laughs> is a mistake, a PowerPoint mistake you notice this number is very similar to that number. (laughs) That is wrong. The actual number is 100,000, roughly. And that's a bit bizarre. You have a totally wild spectrum of varied, different, very different masses of all these quarks and leptons. Uh, And no pattern has emerged, and certainly no explanation. And then you might ask, why is there matter at all? The forces are due to symmetries. That's beautiful and simple and very predictive. Matter is something we know exists because we see it. We don't know why it has to exist. And ultimately, we now understand that we must include gravity in our considerations. And gravity, according to Einstein, is the dynamics of space and time. So we are forced now, or allowed now, to ask questions about the nature of space and time. For example, even the dimensionality of space. Why is space three-dimensional? Why not four, or two, or, say, ten? Some of these... Questions about gravity are, there are many other questions that we'll come to, are quite practical, but questions like this used to be totally philosophical, and yet now have become equally practical. Now, these questions are important to answer, mostly because we're curious and we want to know the answer but also because we suspect that in the search for the answer to these questions we will discover new physics, new phenomena, which will be important. In fact, we believe that these questions are very unlikely to be understood in the framework, the conceptual framework that we possess of quantum filtering. And finally, we really need to know the answer to this question to help allied fields like cosmology and astrophysics to understand the origin and beginning of the universe. And we don't know how to answer these questions in the framework of the standard model or simple extensions, which suggests that at very short distances or at very high energies, where typically the new physics arises, uh, there will be new phenomena. And since the universe started from a very small size and very high energy densities and then expanded, when we go back to learn about the beginning of the universe, we will eventually enter a regime in which perhaps the new physics that is needed to answer these questions uh, will be uh, required. So these why questions are not just there for curiosity's sake, although that is enough motivation for most of us, but also to truly understand the beginning and maybe even the origin of the universe. This is a very dense slide which shows the history of the universe starting with the Big Bang and ending with us, with today. And it is amazing how with our knowledge of fundamental physics, of elementary particle physics, and general relativity, cosmology, and astrophysics, we have a very good idea by now of the history of the universe from its present era to when it looks like it, in some sense, began, 13.7. We know that now quite precisely a billion years ago with something called the Big Bang, which is mostly a big ignorance. As we go back in time, the universe is now expanding. As we go back in time, the universe is contracting. The energies increase. The relevant phenomena occur at shorter and shorter distances. The physics that is relevant changes. Macroscopic physics that is relevant for the behavior of planets and large objects today uh, changes, essentially, when we go back. So, as we go back, we are pushed to higher and higher energies, to higher and higher energy physics. As we go back about a, a few hundred thousand years after the beginning of the universe, atoms disintegrate into electrons, are stripped out of their, their uh, atoms, and we're left with electron, a plasma of electrons, a nucleon. At that point, the universe becomes opaque to light, and the last light we see when we look far into the universe, or far into the past in effect, because light traveling from long distances Uh, from a long time ago, it takes a long time to get here, Uh, that's the last light we see. It's the so-called cosmic microwave background which tells us what the universe looked like 300,000 years ago, which was essentially a thermal bath of radiation um, with nuclei. But using our theory, we can go back even farther, all the way almost to the beginning, and at some point the nuclei themselves melt remember yesterday we saw the nuclei are composites of quarks held together by this strong chromodynamic force because of the strange properties of the vacuum but that vacuum changes, the nature of that vacuum changes, that medium changes when you heat it up and at a critical temperature as we go back nuclei melt and the quarks come flying out and together with the gluons the quanta of the force form a plasma of quarks and gluons we're actually trying to reproduce it's right here, this arrow it's ten to the minus five seconds after the birth of the universe long time ago we're actually trying to reproduce that event for nanoseconds at a high-energy accelerator at Brookhaven, where gold atoms are smashed at very high energies at each other, and hopefully they form for a very short time a hot plasma, which is so hot that the nuclei melt into quarks and gluons. And we're trying to see signals of that new phase of quark-gluon plasma before they fly apart go back even further, even new physics occurs, some of which is only speculative. We keep going back, we arrive at an error where we believe something called inflation ended, where the universe expanded rapidly, and before that we arrive at a point where everything breaks down. This is the area of cosmology that is still shredded in much mystery and much uncertainty. And to understand it, there's no question that we're going to have to find new physics. And new physics most likely will be found in response to answering some of those why questions. I'll come back to cosmology later. Well, For the last 30 years, ever since the standard model was completed, we've been trying to answer these questions without much success. It doesn't seem possible to answer them in the framework of the standard model, or with simple extensions, or even in the framework of quantum field theory. So this traditional method in physics to answer questions that you can't answer is to do experiments to directly probe nature. But that's difficult and expensive. And at present we can only perform experiments at energies of around one TV, a million, million electron volts of energy. I'll talk about experimental efforts in a moment, but Nothing stops theorists from doing experiments in their head at arbitrarily high energies. Theorists have been extrapolating to higher and higher energies, shorter and shorter distances to see what happens in their theories uh, as soon as the standard model was completed. Searching for further simplicity, further unification and answer to these why questions new physics. And there are two very compelling hints that add, from what we already know, that at very high energies, all the subatomic forces unify into one grand unified force based on a bigger symmetry of nature. A bigger symmetry that is not apparent to us because uh, we've learned that most there are many symmetries of nature, some of which we've definitely discovered, that aren't manifest in the world around us at low energies. Just as even though uh, the laws of physics are invariant under translations in time, we all know very well that we are not. Look in the mirror every day, you'll notice that. So it is often the case that we've learned especially in the 20th century that the laws of physics can be can exhibit much greater symmetries than the state of the world due to a phenomena called spontaneous symmetry breaking the world relaxes to a state which doesn't manifest the symmetry that allows us to imagine new symmetries that aren't manifest and Once the standard model was uh, completed, it became quickly apparent that all of the components of the standard model, the quarks and leptons, the two kinds of matter that we have, and the forces fit neatly together into a pattern, a unified pattern. Uh, That unified pattern, let's see, yes. So all of these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle were discovered to naturally fit together. They didn't have to. In fact, before I played the little demonstration, it wasn't at all obvious that they fit together so neatly. In fact, the matter and the forces fit beautifully together into a so-called symmetry group, A uh, group of transformations that includes all of the symmetries of the standard model and a few more in a naturally unified way. Uh, The simplest such group in mathematical terms is called SU5, but the nicest, slightly more complicated one, is something called SO10, which can be thought of as a rotation in 10 dimensions, not to confuse the 10 dimensions with space, rather dimensions of labels of the particles, and the quarks and the up and down quarks and the electrons and the neutrino with one extra particle, not yet observed, but needed, actually, to explain why these neutrinos have mass, small mass, but mass, fit beautifully together into a all 16 of these particles, if you remember that the quarks come in three colors, fit beautifully together with, uh, into a 16-dimensional representation, spinner representation of SO10. That's an incredible clue. You find all these separate particles, all these separate forces, and they naturally fit together to form this totally beautiful object. Well, people took that as an overwhelming hint that there was a bigger symmetry and a bigger force which included all the forces, subatomic forces, and all matter together, and it's just that the state of the world at low energies doesn't manifest that symmetry. That's why, and we can understand how that could happen, see three different forces. This simple picture was enormously compelling, And it made definite predictions. It predicted that protons, the stuff that you're made out of, would be unstable, would radioactively decay. Diamonds would not be forever. Nothing to worry about. They predicted that it would take 10 to the 33 years for a single proton to decay on average. So it's pretty hard to actually detect it, but by now, we've convinced ourselves that that isn't the case. The proton, if it's unstable, and we believe that it surely is, lives much longer than that. So these simple theories were ruled out, however, this natural fitting together is an overwhelming clue that this is part of the story of further unification although the story seems to be much more complicated. The second direct hint that the forces are going to be unified is that the strength of all the forces, which is so different at low energies, the electric force is much, much weaker. That's that 1 over 137 compared to 1. It's a hundred, a thousand times weaker than the strong nuclear force. That's why Atomic bombs are so much more powerful than TNT. One is chemical forces based on electricity. The other are nuclear forces based on QCD. But those forces vary with distance. That was asymptotic freedom. That was my message of yesterday. The strength of the force in quantum field theory depends on what distance you look at. And remember, asymptotic freedom meant that the strong force gets weaker at high energy and the electric force gets stronger so maybe they could come together and merge. And all of this, if you remember, is because of the strange dynamical properties of the vacuum, of the empty space in quantum field theory, which should be thought of as a bubbling medium of virtual fields and particles. And I showed you this picture derived from lattice gauge theory, from calculations of what the vacuum, emptiness, nothingness looks like. For those of you who weren't here, I'll show it to you again. That's emptiness. Something is going on all the time. The time scale is pretty, that was 10 to the minus, what would it be, 10 to the minus 22 seconds. Speed it up here. No, slowed down by 20 orders of magnitude. So this is what goes on in the real vacuum, we believe, and it's this medium that causes the nature of the forces to depend on the distance. So people immediately extrapolated the forces of nature from where we have measured them. This is a plot of the strong force, the weak force, the electromagnetic force, and we've measured sort of up to here on an energy scale. This is where experiments stop. But theory goes on. We can use the theory to extrapolate the forces to higher energy which corresponds to shorter distances. And you see the strong force decreases. That's asymptotic freedom. The electromagnetic force increases. And the three might merge. And the theory allows you to extrapolate. And even 30 years ago, when theory was still somewhat crude, and the experiments were crude, the extrapolation showed that the forces came together and seemed to converge at a very high energy scale. This was the first clue, by the way, that the next threshold of fundamentally new physics is very far away from present-day observation. And also that at this scale, perhaps all the forces unify, as suggested by this pattern of quarks and leptons and by the pattern of the forces. It's a bit intimidating. We're so far away experimentally from this scale where something appears to happen. This does not mean that we do not expect, however, to discover new physics at energies much, much less than this unification scale. In fact, in recent years, we have discovered much new physics. For example, we've discovered that the neutrinos have a very small mass, and one that can be measured. And we've been measuring their masses and mixings for the last decade. And we've discovered new modes of CP violation, time reversal violation of the weak force, which we believe is responsible for the predominance of the underlying one of the underlying components in explaining why the universe is filled with matter and no antimatter. But all of these features of nature, although new, are sort of easily accommodated and understandable in terms of the standard model or very simple extensions of it. CP violation, for example, is absolutely natural and predicted once you have three families of quarks and leptons. And neutrino masses can easily be accommodated by a very simple extension of the standard model. We can't calculate these masses. We can't calculate the CP violation, but that's the same situation we've been in with the quark masses and the electron mass and so on. More important, we have great expectations for a new accelerator that is about to be turned on in Geneva called the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, a big accelerator that will collide protons on protons at an energy of about 14 million million electron volts. Here we expect dramatically new physics to be discovered we expect the discovery of something called supersymmetry. Why, first of all? Well, there are many reasons, but one of the most important that draws on this unification is the fact that over the years, as we improved the experiments and improved the theory, the extrapolation got more and more precise. The starting point was more precisely measured. The theoretical calculations became better. This is a plot now of inverse couplings, one over the coupling, on a logarithmic scale where the couplings essentially... This is the strong force, because I'm going one over the strength of the force, it's going up. So it means it's getting weaker. This is the electric force going down. And the measurements in theory became so precise that you could actually see that the three lines did not meet at a point. As you all know from elementary geometry, three lines do not have to meet at a point. So you can conclude two things. Either there is no unification, or you're missing some physics. Well, there was a beautiful bit of new physics that had been hypothesized long before this uh, measurements were extend, made more precise, actually was discovered, as I'll explain in string theory, called supersymmetry. And when you added it as an extra component to the standard model, lo and behold, the three lines met with inexperimental accuracy. After extrapolating over 14 orders of magnitude, that's 10, you know, one with 14 zeros, precisely. Now, you can regard that as a coincidence or, as many of us do, as evidence that forces are unified at a, turned out, even higher energy, shorter distance, and that supersymmetry is an important component of the real world. So what is supersymmetry? Well, the easiest way to describe supersymmetry is to imagine that space-time, not to imagine, to describe extra dimensions of space and time. To specify an event in physics so far, we need to say where it occurs and at what time it occurs. We need to specify the coordinates, the spatial coordinates, x, y, and z, where an event occurs and at what time it occurs. An event is a point in space-time. Fields are functions of X, Y, Z, and T. Now imagine a space to which we add extra dimensions. You've heard about spaces with extra dimensions. They come, are suggested strongly by string theory as we'll see but the extra dimensions I'm talking about here are not of that type they're not normal extra dimensions, they're kind of quantum extra dimensions oh no here I was describing one of the symmetries of nature where we rotate space do a rotation, x goes to y, the laws of physics actually don't change, do an experiment here an experiment here—that's a symmetry of space and time, of the laws of physics under space-time rotations. Now let's add a new dimension, which I'll denote by theta. That's another dimension of space, but it's not a normal dimension. It's not a dimension whose coordinates we would measure in ordinary numbers. Three inches—we measure them in theta units and these theta numbers are weird numbers. They're called Grassmannian numbers. What's weird about them is that their multiplication law is different than ordinary numbers. It matters what order you multiply them. So theta 1 times theta 2 differs by the minus sign from theta 2 times theta 1. Well, you know, if you've studied calculus, you know that their mathematicians invent all sorts of strange numbers. And Grassmannians, these numbers, these anti-commuting numbers are actually a lot simpler to grasp than imaginary numbers, square root of minus one. So these are perfectly good numbers, and your mathematician friends will tell you. And you can easily imagine a space in which some of the coordinates are ordinary numbers and some are these funny anti-commuting numbers. And these spaces are very nice, some of them. And you can even imagine rotations of these spaces where you rotate an ordinary coordinate, measured in ordinary numbers, to one of these theta coordinates. That's a rotation of superspace. There, it turns out, it was discovered, Uh, in the 70s, a beautiful generalization of the ordinary space-time symmetries that underlie relativity, Einstein's theory of special and general relativity, the basis for our understanding of space and time. Two super transformations that don't just rotate Xs to Ys, but also Xs to Thetas and Xs to Ts and Thetas to Ts and mix up all of these dimensions. Well, the easiest way of telling you what a supersymmetric theory is to say that a supersymmetric theory is a theory that lives in superspace, in which the fields in a quantum field theory are functions not just of x, y, and t, like the electric field is, but functions of x, y, and t and theta. And the wave functions that describe quantum mechanics of objects are functions of all the superspace coordinates. And such theories turned out to have remarkable features. In supersymmetric theories, for example, for every particle we've ever discovered, there's another particle predicted by the theory, a superpartner. Which you get, in a sense, by rotating a ordinary coordinate into a supercoordinate. So when you rotate x into y, you just sort of, if the particle has a, you know, a, if it's not exactly spherically symmetric, it'll look different. You'll get a different looking particle. Just like when I rotate, I look different. But when you rotate x into theta, you turn, because this guy commutes, is an ordinary number, and this doesn't, it's kind of an anti commuting number, you turn a particle in effect into a different kind of particle, differing by its statistics. You change, for those who know what that means, that you change commutation relations to anti-commutation relations. You change relativistic you know, quantum mechanics, the spin of the particle. So, for example, the world, the basic constituents of matter consist of quarks. A rotation like this will turn a quark into what we call a squark, and will turn an electron. Into a selectron, a photon, the quanta of light, into a photino. The jargon is that you add an S in front of matter and an eno in front of and be at the end of the quanta of force. We believe there's a graviton, a quanta of the gravitational field, a the a, a gravitational waves, the quanta of the gravitational waves. So there will also be a gravitino. And these particles differ from these in their statistics and in their spin. And none of them have ever been seen. Now some Somebody joked that supersymmetric theories, we have seen exactly half the particles predicted by the theory. All the ones we knew before the theor- supersymmetry was invented. That might disturb you, but it doesn't disturb us, because we know that most new symmetries we're going to invent aren't going to be manifest in the world around us. They're broken. And that means that these masses will not be the same as these. And in fact, it is quite natural, given the scales of physics, that these particles will turn out to be so heavy that we're just about ready to discover them in that accelerator that I'm going to tell you about. When that discovery takes place, And I go around taking even odds bets with anyone that it will take place. So the machine turns on next year. In a few years, you will read in the New York Times that supersymmetry was discovered, or some crazy people argue that supersymmetry was discovered. Remember that that is tantamount to the discovery of quantum dimensions of space-time. And that's just not a metaphoric way of saying it, you know. The existence of space-time dimensions is a very indirect deduction from our observations of reality. And these quantum dimensions would be equally deduced from the experiments that will discover, hopefully, supersymmetry. So supersymmetry is a very natural and beautiful and unique extension of the relativistic symmetries of nature. I am positive that Einstein if he'd lived long enough would have loved this. It unifies in a beautiful way the constituents of matter which are the are all it appears fermions particles with half integer spin and odd these quantum anti commuting statistics. Whereas the quanta of force are all bosons, and um, are all bosons with integer spin, and and supersymmetry connects this kind of particle to this matter to force. It also is required by string theory, which is why string theorists love it. In fact, it was discovered in string theory accidentally came out of string theory. When people tried to include this kind of matter, they found they could only do so by theories that were supersymmetric. But it's also suggested by nature. I gave you one reason, the unification of the forces works if you have supersymmetry, but there are other reasons. For example, it explains this big hierarchy in masses, why the unification scale is so high. It helps us explain that, which otherwise is a big difference of scales and hard to understand. But perhaps the, one of the most compelling reasons is that it turned out to predict. It wasn't invented to do any of these things, by the way. It turns out to help give a candidate for one of the big mysteries of the universe the enormous amount of dark matter, of matter in the universe which doesn't radiate. As you know, astronomers have concluded in the last decade that most of the matter in the universe is not made out of quarks or electrons or any of the particles of the standard model. It's some kind of matter that does not radiate, like those kinds of particles do. But it appears that 90% of the matter in the universe is in this new form that we can't see directly and we're not sure what it's made out of. And we only know it's there because it affects the motion of stars. We can measure its gravitational, its mass, indirectly through gravity. So, for example, we used to think that a galaxy like the galaxy we live in looks like this. That's just the kind of the stars we can see in the galaxy. But now we know by measuring the orbits of stars in galaxies, that every galaxy really looks like this. And all this blue stuff is some kind of matter, 90% of the matter in the universe, we're not sure what it is. This by the way is a picture of a cluster of galaxies, which to a large extent is held together by this blue stuff, all these red dots are galaxies, and they're being held together by this blue stuff, which is dark matter and you don't actually see it blue. This is the artist's rendition of the inferred distribution of matter. Uh, Well, it could very well be supersymmetric particles. If supersymmetry is just around the corner as suggested by these other hints, then it automatically predicts a candidate for a kind of matter that would interact so weakly with ordinary stuff, including radiation and photons, that we couldn't see it, and it would come in just at this right amount if it was, as we would expect, produced in the earliest history of the universe when the universe was very hot and produced everything possible. So, we could produce this dark matter at the LHC. This is a picture of the LHC, which is being built at CERN in this enormous tunnel that goes uh, between Switzerland and France and contains proton beams that zip around, crossing the border millions of times a second till they collide, producing a very high-energy event, which we hope, among the rest, will allow us to discover the superworld. And that's a very exciting prospect for fundamental physics. Today, in Washington, the ex-president of Princeton University, Harold Shapiro, announced the conclusions of a committee, which I had the pleasure to serve with him on. It's a uh, National Academy Committee that was set up to chart the course of particle physics in the United States. And uh, it's a very interesting report, and uh, I hope you'll read about it in the paper tomorrow. I hope it was covered. We conclude that the United States is actually at a crossroad. Europe is taking over in a big way. And uh, uh, one of our recommendations to revitalize what has been a declining support for elementary particle physics over the last 15 years is to urge the, um, the U.S. to be in a position to bid to host the next large collider, which, which is called the International Linear Collider, that uh, is an international collaboration to construct an electron-anti-electron collider, not a circular machine, but a linear machine, head-on collisions, ra- going around circles for electrons radiates too much energy and is too wasteful. And uh, hopefully this will be done um, within the next, by the end of the next decade. So we have much great hopes uh, in particle physics for astounding discoveries, quantum dimensions of space and time, dark matter, uh, in the next round of experimental tests. But still, Returning to the unification of forces, that will take us a little bit on this logarithmic scale beyond present-day observation. The forces meet at this extraordinarily high energy, so can we really imagine that theorists, experimentalists, aren't going to measure directly out here for a long, long time, if ever? Can we trust theorists to extrapolate physics by a factor of 10 to the 14th? Most experimenters don't trust theorists to extrapolate by a factor of 10. And it, it would be quite unprecedented for theory to succeed in figuring out what goes on here if experiment is stuck down here. Well, there are two reasons why we might be successful. One is that we have an extremely firm foundation in present day observation and in our theory of the standard model. I showed you the kind of precision to which it's been tested. That places enormous constraints over any kind of modifications you make to try to answer some of the why questions I enumerated. Most, if you try to do almost anything, you screw up. Uh, the, the precise agreement we have. So we have a very firm foundation to build on. But the second more interesting reason is that this scale of unification turns out to be the scale where gravity becomes a strong force as well. Gravity is a very weak force at low energy. In the atom, the gravitational force between the electron and the nucleus is 40 orders of magnitude weaker than the force of of electricity. And you can all check this experimentally yourself. Look, I'm holding up this little device with my fingers, and what's pulling on it is the whole Earth. And with a little bit of chemical energy, which is electricity, I'm holding this up Opposing the whole Earth. That's a pretty weak force. But the gravitational force increases with energy, which is not hard to understand. You don't need the quantum vacuum to understand that. Gravity is proportional, you know, couples to mass mass squared, mass times mass. Gravity increases like the mass of the objects, which is why a big Earth can give a little pull on this thing. Mass, remember, is energy, m, Einstein's equation, m equals e over c squared. So when we increase the energy, the gravitational force increases quadratically, like the square of the energy. That's very fast. These guys are falling logarithmically. This increases quadratically. And if you go out 20 orders of magnitude, you'll compensate for a factor of 10 to the 40 in weakness. And at this energy scale, gravity becomes, well, it looks like it unifies. That's a hint, indeed, that at the next threshold of fundamental physics, at this unification scale, we're gonna to have to include gravity. And that, well, that, how does that make life easier? Well, it makes the challenge harder because it means that we can't just do any old little modification of the standard model. We must include gravity in this domain where it has to be treated quantum mechanically. And that restricts us enormously because we have very few attempts that can possibly do that, which finally brings us to string theory. By the way, what is this Planck scale? Let me say a few words about the Planck scale. The th- in physics, uh, anyone who's taken a freshman physics course knows that when you when you do a problem set or a final exam, you have to give your answers in units. You're not allowed just to give a number. You have to say meters or meters per second. Otherwise, you it's a wrong answer. Even if you got the number right, you got to know what units you're measuring things in. You need a unit of length, of time, and of mass, and that's it. Anything physical quantity can be expressed in those units. And what units to choose? Well, you can choose man-made units like inches or pounds or meters or seconds. But the physicist chooses units that are picked out by nature and play a fundamental role in nature. And we've all decided and agreed, in fact, it goes back to Max Planck, that the fundamental units of nature are the velocity of light, which clearly the limiting velocity plays a fundamental role. That gives a unit of velocity. The quantum of action, that's Planck's unit. Action is essentially mass times velocity times distance, but this controls quantum mechanics. And then, of course, the Newton's constant that tells you how strong gravity is since gravity is such a fundamental force in nature. Planck believed, and that's why they're called the Planck units, that these were indeed the fundamental units of nature. When he discovered H in his formula for blackbody radiation, he was not excited about the fact that he had snuck in the backdoor quantum mechanics. He had no idea that he had started the quantum mechanical revolution. If you read his original papers, what he's most excited about is H, because he finally had a complete set of units, which he could, in a fundamental way, use to measure everything. And he remarked that, well, if we wanted ever to communicate to a civilization in Sirius, you know, what our size is and how long a week is. Well, we couldn't tell them seconds or meters because they'd probably use some other units, but Planck units would be universal. Trouble is that these units give... If you turn them into lengths and seconds and time and mass, they're pretty bizarre. Uh, Although all physical quantities can be expressed in terms of them, the Planck length is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So we would tell our friends in Sirius, well, you know, we're sort of... 10 to the 34 basic units big. And they would understand. And we live, you know, 10 to the uh, 54 basic units. What is really remarkable is how small this length is, how short this time is, how enormously energetic the Planck energy scale is. This is a big puzzle. this is the basic scale, why is it so different from us? Why is it so different even from the subatomic scale, from the scale of the standard model? That's the so-called hierarchy problem, the hierarchy of scales, the disparity of the fundamental scale and the scale of atomic physics. This hierarchy of scales, which can be expressed many ways, for example, the fact that the Mass. the Planck mass is 19 orders of magnitude bigger than the proton mass, governs the structure of the universe in a profound way. For example, you might ask, why are stars so big? Why do stars have so many protons? Well, roughly speaking, stars and consequently planets and people are so big because if you make them bigger, they'll collapse the black holes. And the sort of, the most protons you can stick into a star is roughly, you know, and this is uncertain within a factor of 100, 1,000, there are different kinds of stars, this number, the hierarchy of these scales to the third power. That's why there are roughly 10 to the 57 protons in a star. If the hierarchy were not so big, if the proton were the typical scale of fundamental physics, so that this number was 1, that would be nice maybe because then we could get to the fundamental scale quite easily it wouldn't be far away from us but on the other hand stars would only have a few hundred protons and you certainly couldn't have complex beams like us around also the reason gravity is so weak as I explained is because at low energies inside atoms is because of this scale Gravity has gotten so much weaker by 40 orders of magnitude. If the scale was much smaller, gravity would be as strong as as electricity inside atoms. But more importantly, space-time wouldn't be smooth. The strength of gravity goes like this, number squared. And the curvature of space, which according to Einstein, is dictated by, that's what gravity is, the curvature of space space would be totally curved and distorted. And it would be a pretty messy picture as we look out into space. So, to some extent, this hierarchy is pretty good for us, but it causes big problems to extrapolate to very high energies. Well, let's go now to quantum gravity and the fact that we have to face up to the regime of energies and distances where gravity is a strong quantum force. And as I said, this is an important clue because it seems to force us to go beyond quantum field theory. If there's one obvious limitation where our understanding of the conceptual framework of physics, of quantum field theory break, tells us that something is going to break down, it's the application of quantum field theory to incorporate gravity the dynamics of space and time. You see, according to Einstein, energy and matter distort and curve space and time. It's hard to picture that, but we can actually measure it in situations where the curvature is very small, say near the sun. But in quantum mechanics, any dynamical object undergoes these fluctuations. You saw what the vacuum looked like in the real world because of those quantum fluctuations of chromodynamic fields. Well now imagine that space and time is fluctuating as well. That raises lots of problems and indeed after 70 years of study and research uh, we, many of us have concluded that uh, these quantum fluctuations are uncontrollable in the framework of quantum field theory. All attempts to directly quantize Einstein's theory fail. And many wondered whether quantum mechanics and relativity are consistent. So an alternate idea, this is a picture of the foam, the violent fluctuations. I mean, an artist's rendition, which is surely wrong, of the foam, the fluctuations of space-time at short distances from which we might conclude that Einstein's theory really only applies at large distances and at short distances something else comes in not described by quantum field theory and the only real candidate I believe we have is string theory now string theory has become quite popular throughout uh, our culture which I first discovered I seen this cartoon in the New Yorker, where a, uh, two intellectuals are walking down the street. Looks like New York, and and she says it's all string theory to me. I was really surprised when I discovered that string theory uh, uh, has become the equivalent of Greek. But what really got me was when I read the sequel to, uh, to what what is it, what was the first one? Um, Silence, of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. So this is the Hannibal, which it was also made into an excellent movie. And you remember this is about Hannibal Lecter, this evil character. And late in the novel, Lecter is sitting in an armchair with a big pad of butcher paper doing calculations. The pages are filled with the symbols both of astrophysics and particle physics. There are repeated efforts with the symbols of string theory. (laughs) The few mathematicians who could follow him might say his equations begin brilliantly and then decline, doomed by wishful thinking. This really upset me if this was becoming the popular view of string theory and uh, part of my message is to counter this. So I'll briefly describe string theory and tomorrow's lecture will be devoted more to the present state and the future revolutions, perhaps, in string theory. But string theory is a break with the past. The past, as we discussed last time, starts with the atomic hypothesis and continually makes advances, as we've seen, by finding subatomic structure within atoms, nuclei, and then protons, and then quarks, continually finding smaller and smaller point-like objects within the structure of matter. The standard model is currently based on these elementary quarks and electrons, which seem to have no structure. And you might assume that the next stage would involve e- even smaller particles, subquarks and subleptons. String theory really breaks with that tradition and says no. We're going to replace a point particle with an extended string. And if you were to look with a very good microscope that could resolve this Planck length size, then instead of point particles you would see extended strings. According to string theory, the basic constituents of matter, at least as we, one way of looking at string theory, are not point-like particles, but rather extended one-dimensional strings. This is an important break with the historical tradition of 2,000 years. But you see that a. The idea that all particles might be excitations of a string has the potential to be a unifying idea because a string has many different shapes. A point has no shape at all, it's just the point. You could attach labels like charge or rotation or labels to a point. But a string now can be deformed in an infinite number of ways. It's a much more complicated, richer object than a point you could imagine that different particles, as string theory predicts, are described by different vibrations of the string, not just the quark and the electron, but also the quanta of light, the quanta of gravity. In fact, in string theory, all of the particles that we've observed and zillions of others we haven't, are simply different harmonics of the same vibrating string. A string can indeed vibrate in an infinite number of ways, and each of its vibrational modes will look like a point-like particle at large distances. So it's inherently a unifying idea. Why not? Why do particles... things have to be made out of point-like particles? Let's explore that other possibility. This actually is not the way string theory was discovered. But let me describe it in this sort of, uh, the way we would describe it today. I like to say that string theory so far is a conservatively radical modification of the principles of physics, replacing particles by strings and nothing else trying to keep, at least so far, all the other principles of physics fixed. Now this is a very um, wise thing to do. Most attempts to change the concepts or modify the fundamental laws of physics contradict either experiment or logic or both. If you're going to make changes in the fundamental laws of physics, you should be very cautious and modify the least number of principles. And so far, in a sense, all string theory has modified is somehow the idea that points like constituents play a fundamental role. And in fact, to a large extent, the development of string theory has been, has been uh, achieved. By following all the principles of physics and just changing particles into strings. For example, a particle moves through space. We'd like to describe its motion. We plot its trajectory in, t- in space as it moves in time, its so called world line, its space time trajectory. And one way of determining its motion is to say that the particle moves along a line of minimal length, minimal relativistic length in a relativistic theory. That minimal length principle is one way of determining the motion of a free particle. It tells you that free particles move in straight lines if there are no other particles around in flat space or on geodesics in curved spaces. To learn how a relativistic string should move, we do the same thing exactly, replacing a particle by a string. A string comes in and moves, and it sweeps out a tube in space as it moves in time. A world tube! And we can write down a principle to determine its motion by saying that it will move so as to minimize Not the length, because the tube doesn't have a length, but the tube has a natural generalization of length, the area. And if the tube is very thin, so it looked like a particle, the area would be essentially the length. So that's natural, geometrical. It determines the classical motion of a free string. Very simple. Conceptually, it's exactly the same thing as particles. What about the quantum mechanics? Well, here, too, we follow the same picturesque description using Feynman's prescription. Feynman says, quantum mechanics, you don't calculate the actual trajectory. You don't know where the particle went. You're interested in the probability that if it starts here at some point, at some time, it'll be here at some point later time. And you consider all possible trajectories, and sum over all of them, Sum over all paths, all histories, weighted by a phase factor, which th- depends on the length of the trajectory. That's the way Feynman gave a description of quantum mechanics, one that's easy to generalize from particles to strings. It's trivial. You just replace the sum over paths, trajectories, by the sum over tubes. Lots of different ways a string can move from one configuration at one time to another at another time. and You sum over all these paths, these tubes, weighted with same kind of phase factor, replacing length by area. In a conceptual sense, string theory is a trivial modification of ordinary physics you just replace a particle by a string, keep everything else fixed. Conceptually, there's nothing much new here. The mathematics is a little more complicated. It's harder to sum over tubes than over lines. But, in a hundred years from now, and this is taught in high school, it'll seem absolutely trivial. (laughs) However, a Big change occurs when we consider interacting strings and interacting particles. An amazing difference that naturally leapt out of us. How do we describe in this picturesque motion the interactions of particles? We say that two particles, A and B, if they happen to be at the same point, the same time, if they intersect, if their world lines intersect, they have some probability of turning into another particle. That's how we describe interactions. One way, perturbatively, feynman according to Feynman, of describing interactions of elementary particles. Thus, for example, an electron a positron, if They're going along, and they meet at the same point at the same time, can turn, with some probability, into a photon. The interaction, the force occurs at this vertex, this point on the graph where the three world lines meet, the interaction point. And it's at this point where all the arbitrariness of quantum field theory comes in you have to say, you have to give, you have to take from measured values of experiment and put in here the number that tells you what the probability is that the particles will interact. That's where all those numbers that we can't calculate come in to the theory. Well, what about strings? If string theory had been discovered in this way, and it wasn't, this interpretation came later, You might have said, well, this is how strings interact. Two strings come along, and when they overlap, then there's some probability that they will form a third string. And instead of an interaction point, there would be an interaction curve. And you'd have to specify a probability for each curve. That's a number for every curve. How many curves are there? An infinite number of curves. So in string theory, you'd need an infinite number of numbers, which doesn't, wouldn't be very good. We weren't happy with a few numbers. And this, believe me, would be a sick, sick theory. Luckily, people, when they first discovered string theory, didn't know it was even string theory. And they guessed the interactions, which turned out not to be based on this picture, but an equally good picture of two strings coming together, a picture which is called the pants diagram. Think about your pants. And time is going up. And slices, horizontal slices, give you strings. Right? Oops. And they come up and form one string. So this is a space-time picture. You know, at any given time we have at the beginning string A and B which uh, come together and end up being string C. But it's a very different picture between the previous one. Here, at no point are the two strings A and B overlapping. In fact, if you look at this space-time history, you might ask, where did the interaction take place? In this graph, there's a very singular point. If you're an ant walking along the graph, you know when you're at the interaction point because that's the one point where you can go in three different directions. It's different from all the other points on these lines. But on this pants, every point is the same if you have a good tailor. Where did the interaction take place? You don't know. It's a global property of this history. You know because if time starts here... You start with two strings, or two legs, and you end with one waist, one string. The string interaction, in this way of describing it, which turns out to be the right way to do it, is topological and unique. There's no place like this vertex where you can add numbers. You don't have to. In fact, once you know how strings propagate freely, once you have the pants, you can construct, sorry, once you have the leg, these legs, you can construct the whole pants. This is one way of understanding, or in the case of history, discovering accidentally that string theory is incredibly unique. There are no new numbers you have to add to describe interactions. In fact, as far as we can see, there is no arbitrariness, no numbers that are needed to characterize the equations of string theory. Solutions is a different matter. We'll discuss that tomorrow. Twenty years ago, we actually thought we had five different string theories. Two of them were discovered here in Princeton. Very lovely string theories. Now we understand that all the string theories are different manifestations of the same thing. But as we'll discuss tomorrow, we're not really sure what that is. But whatever it is, it's unique. Strange situation. Well, actually, string theory is pretty amazing. And it wasn't, as I hinted before, developed as a theory of strings. It could have been. It could have been developed 60 years ago as a theory of quantized strings. In fact, it started as an attempt to describe nuclear particles and forces because it is a fact that nuclear particles as I showed you yesterday, look a bit like strings. So if you remember the picture from yesterday, this is a quark and an anti-quark being pulled apart, and a string-like thing developed between them. And in fact, we now know, based on our understanding of quantum chromodynamics, that if the number of colors wasn't three, but infinite, and it isn't infinite, but theorists can imagine that it could be very, very big, then this string picture would get better and better. And in fact, might be a useful way of describing these nuclear particles. And it's because QCD has this property that it wasn't surprising that people sort of stumbled into string theory trying to represent mathematically the properties of nuclear particles. And after deriving much of the properties of strings, they uh, realized that they were actually describing a quantized relativistic string. So it started as an attempt to describe nuclear particles and forces and therefore most of its most amazing properties were not welcome when they were discovered. And people tried to get rid of all the wonderful things that they discovered because they're not properties of nuclear particles. For example, it was discovered that space-time had to have 26 dimensions. Well, that doesn't work for the world of nuclear particles. And then a supersymmetry was discovered, which doesn't work for the world of nuclear physics either, in order to describe these spinning half-integer spin particles. And then, including that supersymmetry, space-time was required to have 10 dimensions, which isn't good either. And people kept fighting again. Trying to reduce the 10 to 3. And then they discovered that they were forced to have local symmetries, these gauge symmetries that underlie the Standard Model. But that wasn't part of the nuclear world, it was part of the subnuclear world. And then, even worse, gravity appeared. And they weren't trying to discover a theory of gravity, they were trying to understand the strong force so all of these incredible features of string theory that are needed to describe the standard model and gravity appeared to the frustration of the discoverers. They were forced on us by this theory, which didn't allow you, for example, like every other theory we ever had before, not to consider gravity. And as we'll discuss tomorrow, much, much more. Well, what has string theory achieved so far? It's older than QCD. It's 37 years old, string theory, when it started. Well, it does give some kind of extension of the conceptual framework of physics that's different. And those extensions are pretty rare. There haven't been many in the history of physics. The last two successful ones, of course, were in the 20th century, relativity, special and general, and quantum mechanics, which involved two of those fundamental dimensionful parameters, C and H. Some of us believe that string theory will turn out to be the third, involving the third dimensionful parameter. These new theories of relativity and quantum mechanics were extensions of classical theory. They didn't say that classical physics was wrong, it was just approximate. The Relativistic theories reduced the classical physics for low velocities or high action. And many of us believe that similarly, string theory will turn out to be an equally, perhaps even more profound revolution Involving Newton's constant or the Planck length, which will again reduce to ordinary quantum field theory when distances are large compared to the Planck scale. And that is what I'll discuss tomorrow, this possibility. The other two achievements of string theory is that it incorporates naturally gravity, and indeed gives us an example of a consistent and finite theory of quantum gravity, and most excitingly, a very rich structure with all those gauge forces, and as I'll say a bit tomorrow, the content of matter that might, that contains everything we seem to need to um, describe the standard model in a theory which seems to be at its core, at the level of equations, as much as we understand it, totally unique. Well, I'm going to end today just by saying a word about the quantum theory of gravity, which string theory provides us, a at least an existence proof, a demonstration that quantum mechanics and relativity are consistent. Which really uh, is important because people, after 70 years of trying, were beginning to worry that they were irreconcilable. More importantly, now that we have a quantum theory of gravity, we can use it to explore many of the strange phenomena that occur when gravity becomes strong and space-time is deeply warped already string theory has clarified many of the mysteries and seemingly seeming paradoxes of black holes. In particular, it has resolved the issue of the fate of black holes, uh, or is beginning to. Hawking showed that black holes, which are called black holes because classically they're black. The gravitational force is so strong that light itself falls back and cannot be emitted from a black hole. Hawking, however, showed that a black hole, which is created when ordinary matter falls together, enough matter falls together and collapses, uh, quantum mechanically will emit radiation as if it was a hot thermal object. In fact, the black hole behaves like a thermal object with entropy and temperature and radiates away, loses energy, eventually disappears. But he also concluded that the radiation is totally disordered, thermal radiation, and a black hole can be created in a very well-defined, ordered fashion, and therefore, Hawking concluded that information will be lost in this quantum process of the formation of a black hole and its uh, eventual decay. Hawking concluded that somehow, in quantum gravity, you have to give up some of the sacred principles of quantum mechanics, the principles that assure that information is not lost. Well, string theory has proven to be very useful in exploring this challenge to quantum mechanics. New ideas in string theory have saved the day. We have ways of describing these complicated and mysterious black holes in dual alternate descriptions that are familiar, in fact, are similar to QCD, and in which we know that information is not lost. So string theory has saved the day for quantum mechanics and has proven in this very conceptually difficult case that quantum mechanics and general relativity, quantum gravity, are consistent. And we hope, and I'll say a bit about that tomorrow, string theory might prove useful in discussing the most paradoxical and confusing and important issue of quantum gravity the space-time singularity at the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, the origin, maybe, of the universe. So far, string theory hasn't succeeded. Uh, Although it has explained many other kinds of singularities, not this one that occurs, you remember, at the beginning of the universe. But maybe it can much more work will be required. However, string theory also suggests that our notions of space-time must be radically modified. And we'll be talking about that tomorrow when I discuss the coming revolutions. So for tonight, we have arrived at the end. And tomorrow, the coming revolutions.
0: Would you like to take a few questions? So we have, we have time for uh, just a few questions, maybe two or three. Oh, why, do you,
2: why don't you tell uh, people, if they want to leave, they should leave, and yeah. if people want to stay and ask questions, they can stay and ask questions yeah. and, and wait a few minutes people leave.
0: Okay. Yeah, let's do that. So uh, yeah, the speaker uh, suggested the protocol, which is uh, as uh, some people would like to leave, that's fine, and Others can stay, maybe come closer. At some point, we might have to turn off the microphones to let our staff uh, go home. But you're welcome to stay as long as the speaker is willing to answer questions.
2: (laughs) Sure, yeah, I think there are these people with microphones. I'm gonna take off. Okay. See you tomorrow. Are you coming tomorrow? Absolutely. Okay. Still a good, good percentage. Yes. I see you, Tom. Okay. Yeah. Well, the thing is <sighs> that. You need a mic. Nobody can hear you, Igor. Yes,
1: we're open to questions now. Uh, Yes, please. I
2: I have a kind of pretty abstract question. How can one imagine a physical theory such as uh, string theory without any degrees of freedom? How is it possible that kind of there are no constants of nature which are arbitrary. What kind of mathematical principles or conceptual principles uh, are used to underlie this type of theory? So what, what is it that you find hard to understand? How there can be a theory with no free parameters? Yes. Sorry?
0: What are the axioms?
2: Well, as you will see, tomorrow we are far from knowing what the theory is yet, not to speak of the axioms, but if you were here yesterday, I discussed QCD, which to some extent, in the realm where it works, is an example of a theory with no free parameters. So um, if if the world had no leptons, no electrons, neutrinos, only quarks and if those quarks were massless then QCD would describe the dynamics of those quarks and they would form composites which would be like the neutron and the proton and everything would be calculated there would be no arbitrariness their theory would be defined in units of there's no gravity, so I need another mass in units of one of the arbitrarily chosen particles. You'd choose as a standard mass. And then all other masses and all the interactions would be calculable by pure mathematics. And for Q, C, D, the So that's a simpler example of a theory which has... Uh, no arbitrariness. Now the real world has these other forces and these other lots of parameters that we don't know how to incorporate yet. But string theory is a theory where, give you one argument, one reason, way of understanding that there's sort of no place in the theory to add some kind of effect, some kind of force which has adjustable parameters we see no sign of non-uniqueness as we will discuss tomorrow when you try to look for solutions of these unique this unique theory which we still don't know what it is as I'll also discuss uh, there will be many solutions it appears And some people argue that that's equally uh, bad for predictability. Best is, of course, to have a unique set of equations, which have a unique set of solutions. So, so far, a lot of evidence that we have a unique set of equations. There's not a lot of evidence so far that we have a unique set of solutions. But this will be discussed tomorrow. Sort of a historical question, Um, the Kaluza Klein had a solution with a compactification that seemed very close to what you're talking about. Does that play any role in the history? Well, the idea of extra dimensions, uh, I'll say a word about that tomorrow, uh, is old, goes back to 1922 with Kaluza Klein, who uh, in the framework of classical general relativity, Einstein's theory imagine the world had extra dimensions, and when, well, they actually considered one extra dimension, which when compactified, uh, uh, rolled around into a little circle, provided a kind of unified explanation for electromagnetism. And that kind of so-called Kaluza-Klein unifications finds a very natural place in string theory in a much more interesting way. Uh, and I'll discuss that a bit tomorrow. Yeah, that one came along bef- when there was only the two fe- um, forces, as far as I know, anyway. The strong and the weak force weren't around then. Was was the is the one of the main reasons for the necessity for the other dimensions? have to do with the addition of the other forces? Um, uh, that's a good, good question. Uh, when people started looking for unified theories, I showed you the evidence that was in the late 70s. The first attempts to look for unified theories um, were generalizations, or some of the attempts were generalizations of exactly that idea. Uh, Kaluza and Klein and Einstein, who played around with that idea for 30 years, um, only needed one more dimension because all they wanted to do was to unify gravity and EM. If you want to include the other forces, you need more dimensions, and people were driven all the way up to eleven that way in order to include the forces of the Standard Model. But those attempts again within quantum field theory suffered from serious problems of consistency, and. In the end, we're simply overtaken by the success of string theory, which also incorporates those ideas in different ways. But that's right. You need, if you follow that idea, you need more and more dimensions uh, to to get more and more forces. Um.
0: Yesterday, you started off by defining reality in terms of what can be calculated. You then went on to point out that Rutherford scattering... Allows you to calculate this, the angle of alpha particles scattering off of gold. Quantum electrodynamics will calculate the Lamb shift and will calculate, or rather, alpha, the fine structure constant, is the same over a number of experiments. In quantum chromodynamics, you have exactly the same coupling constant being the same, and I guess you have the energy levels of J and psi. You have, Would you say sp- you
2: have the spectrum of all the hadrons now. Would you say that string theory has
0: satisfied your requirement of reality <laughs> to allow you to calculate anything enough to you call it You can calculate
2: a lot of things, but not yet reality. <laughs> so, um, no, that's the goal. So, you know, uh, tomorrow I, I'm going to summarize where we are, uh, and I will be discussing that kind of question. But there of course we're not, we 're not you know my talk would be look would we'll, we'll, we'll look quite different tomorrow i wouldn 't be talking about the coming revolutions i 'll be talking about the revolution or the past revolution. I think actually um, we don 't yet have the tools, and it might take the coming revolutions to get to the place where we can make those calculations of fundamental parameters that really test the theory or predictions so at the moment we can make predictions but they're qualitative uh, string theory suggests phenomena that might be there whose qualitative, whose discovery <coughs> would be an enormous qualitative indication of string theory um, but that's certainly not the goal that I was, that we we're all aiming for. So we're not there yet, and we might be still far from there, as I will discuss tomorrow.
0: Uh, okay.